Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Much is made of the importance of Peter's tears because for those who can't face their own sins, much is riding on them. But that's not how the story works. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 407 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the reasons people struggle with the critique of Peter, James, and John is because they struggle with the critique of themselves. They want to be on the good side. And if someone who wrote an epistle, all three of them have epistles ascribed to them in the New Testament, is presented in 2 Corinthians as a minister of Satan, what hope is there for them? People want things cut and dry. They want them black and white. They want to know who's right so that they can be right. But that's not how it works in Scripture. No way, no how. So, Father, when you talk about Peter and the image of Peter in the end, I mean, you do have to look at the entire picture of Peter, because we just talked last week about the chief priests. They wanted to look at this one statement of Jesus and judge him for the death penalty based on one statement, ignoring all the other actions he had done throughout his ministry and the preaching he had done. By the same token, you can't just take Peter and say, oh, no, but he repented in the end. Okay, that's nice. That's good. But you have to look at the entire story of Peter and just say, oh, no, he ended up a good guy. He wrote a good letter. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, one president can have a terrible, wicked reign as president and do one good thing. It's good that he did one thing, but you can't ignore the wickedness. And you can't just assume he's wicked and ignore the good thing. Like, you have to take the entire story in mind. So I think it's really important that we take this and understand that this is an important part of who Peter is. Because this is the Peter who said, even if everyone is scandalized, I will not be scandalized. I will not stumble on the way. This is what Peter says in Matthew, and then this is what he does in the end in Matthew. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. Here we have the first instance of Peter's denial, and I'll just point out that this is, in fact, the correct translation. This could be just a maidservant, a young girl, a servant girl. It's the same root as the Greek word for child, so it's a young woman who is presumed to be doing service. The word is not slave. It's a different term in Greek. 
but it's someone who is ministering, working, serving in the courtyard, and she notices that Peter is part of Jesus's group, part of his company, and he denies it openly in front of all of them. Remember, he's in the courtyard of the enemy camp, and he is denying his affiliation with his Lord and Master, his teacher, his captain, his Messiah. I mean, if you take these two verses on their own, it seems pretty innocuous. You take it in context, it feels pretty slimy. And what adds to the sliminess is the chief priests, when they're saying, like, what was he doing? What have you been up to? And here is just a pediski, just a woman who's just doing work in the courtyard. And not only does she know who Jesus is, she knows that Peter was hanging around with Jesus. So <laughs> that Jesus was saying these things, obviously it's not a surprise. When Jesus says, you could have heard me anywhere, this Pidiski, this random woman who's walking through the courtyard, recognizes Jesus' disciples as belonging to Jesus. So this is how obvious this was to everybody, and that even adds to the silliness of Peter. If some random woman happens to know that he was with Jesus, I mean, come on, who does Peter think he's fooling? Peter is constantly, throughout this book, fooling nobody, including Jesus, but himself. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. There are two things in this section. First, we heard earlier in Matthew <laughs> that you shall not make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes or no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So here we have Peter not just denying his teacher, his captain, his Messiah, his friend, Jesus, but he's denying, more importantly, the teaching of Jesus Christ, which comes from God the Father. It was by an oath that John the Baptist was executed, and it is by an oath that Jesus will be executed, the oath of a sinner, the oath of a betrayer, the oath of someone who is in league with an earthly principality, an earthly power, in this case in the courtyard of that earthly institution. And of course, Richard, you and I were talking about the problem of translation. We know that in Greek you can assign gender to the word that is translated here as another. So you can say, when he had gone out to the gateway, another saw him, and we know that it's referring to a woman, and you could assume that it's a young girl because there was already an instance of a young girl. Here, the translators assume that you can say it's a servant girl. But that's not the same in every translation that we've come across, is it? Exactly. When we translate, there's always difficult situations we end up in. And I, you know, I translated the book of Hosea from my commentary, and I know how tricky this can be. 
In Greek, it's very clear that the another has to be feminine. And one of the reasons I like using the King James translation is it actually tries to be very faithful with the words that it adds. Sometimes you might disagree with the words that it adds, but I like that they set apart the words that they add. So in the King James, it says another maid. Now, maid in King James English can be more broad than just someone who cleans a house. It can be any maiden, you know, it can be a young woman. But we also have a similar situation in your translation. It says, this man was also with Jesus of Nazareth. It doesn't say this man in Greek, it just says this, but it has to be a masculine. So that's the thing when we translate a Greek word that's very specific and we don't have that specific of a word in English. If it were German, we'd have no problem. If it were French, no problem. Just English, we're kind of deficient in the genders of these words, of these adjectives. So the translator has to make these decisions. And one of the things I just love about King James is how it makes it so obvious. Now, back to your other point, Father, which is about how he denied with an oath, no less. Who do we have in this scene now, so far, who have made false oaths? Well, we have the false witnesses who the chief priests went out to go and find. And now we have Peter, who falls in that same boat. So when we have a category of people, not only did Peter fall away and be scandalized, but he also did so with all the fireworks of a false oath landing him along with these scoundrels that the chief priest managed to scrounge up in order to make a lousy, cruel case against an innocent man. I think the key point about the translation discussion with respect to verse 71 and 72 is that each of us, when we hear Scripture and work through these texts, each of us must be responsible to check the translation, even if you don't know the original languages, when you see in the English manuscript anything footnoted or italicized, very often in these English translations, they will italicize a word that is imposed. But what's really insidious is that while the New American Standard Bible sometimes does that, in other places they don't. They italicized servant girl. They didn't italicize man. Now, Presumably, they're doing that consistently, but why did they make that decision? And how many decisions like that have they made? And how do you, as an addressee of the text, know where they made those decisions? There's only one way to know. You have to make the effort to look at different translations and to look at the original Greek. You cannot make assumptions about what should be there and what should not be there. One of the easiest pitfalls for any of us when we preach or teach, and this happened to me a lot in the early days of my ministry, you'd pick up an English text and start explaining it on the basis of the English text. Very dangerous. And then you go home later and you look at the Greek and you're like, oh no, I was talking about a word that Paul never used. So, the only way that you can effectively pick up an English text and explain it to an American audience is if you've been working on the Greek text at home by yourself. That's really important. And what Rich and I do on this program is, in effect, show you how the sausage is made, because we do Bible study together and we share it with you. 
We've got multiple manuscripts out. We're doing the work right here on the program. I mean, you get a relatively finished product, but you're seeing how Bible study goes. And there's more work that has to be done than even what we're showing on the program. In the case of Father Paul's show on Tuesdays, and to call it a show is just a term of convenience. <laughs> In the case of Father Paul's podcast on Tuesdays, you're seeing the results of decades of grueling, painstaking, exegetical analysis and labor. So when you hear 20 minutes of work on one or two Hebrew terms and you think it's really hard to understand, you can't fathom the amount of work that went into being able to spend 20 minutes on two or three Hebrew terms. And it'll take you a lifetime of work to be able to ask a question about the word studies that Father Paul is presenting. This is what life in faith and Jesus Christ is all about. It's about studying and making every effort to hear the sacred scroll. So these little discrepancies about which word was inserted and which word was withheld and how the translators are handling the problem of gender in language. Not gender as it pertains to biology. I mean, who cares? Gender as a grammatical function, that's what we're talking about. And how it can impair our ability to hear what's going on in the text once it's filtered by translation. That's the issue. And this is relatively simple. Now you get into something like the genealogy, Rich, where somebody thinks that Matthew is not honoring our modern sensibilities about equality and decides that we shouldn't have skipped Bathsheba, and they suddenly undermine an argument, then we're in real trouble. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. I love this because my father, may he rest in peace, spoke with an accent. My mother's father spoke with a very thick accent. My teacher speaks with an accent. All the people that I care about speak with an accent. Many of the new friends I've made through your connections in the immigrant community, Richard, speak with an accent. And my whole life, I have been committed to making sure everybody knows one should not be ashamed of your accent or putting a Palestinian scarf around your neck or giving your kids Middle Eastern names. So I always snicker <laughs> when Peter is a little bit embarrassed of his accent. <laughs> Well, one thing we always say in linguistics is everybody has an accent. It just depends on which point of view you're coming from. Come on, and Pete! What's wrong with Galilee, Pete? The problem with Galilee is its unfortunate connection with Jesus of Nazareth. And this is exactly the problem, is that when we have accents, they're always associated with this or that 
place or this or that group of people. And anytime you have an accent, it shows who you've been hanging out with, who you spend time with. I was just reading I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And I love that book, Richard. Thanks for bringing it up. And the first part of the book, she isn't even fully convinced that white people exist. She doesn't deal with white people. She doesn't go to the white area of town. And when she does, she's very guarded. The only time she rarely sees a white person is maybe the white police chief comes to her house. She might see that. There are the poor white kids who come to tease her grandmother and that sort of thing or come into the shop and cause a ruckus. But she just doesn't really interact with white people at all. So does it make sense that black people and white people in the South would speak differently? Yes. Their accent shows who they've been hanging out with. This doesn't have anything to do with being white or black or education or anything like this. It just talks about who you've been hanging out with. Even in London, different accents occur because of what social class you're in, because those are your buddies. You go to church with them. You go drinking on the Saturday night with them. You work with them. You go to parties with them. You go to the baptisms, you go to the weddings, it's all within that small group. And your accent shows who you've been hanging out with. Peter can't fake this. You know, it's like, oh, we just happen to be from Galilee. How big of a place is Galilee where Peter and Jesus wouldn't have run into each other, first of all? And secondly, already two random people are like, hey, weren't you hanging out with that guy? They all know already. So they have another piece of data against him, and so he has to swear all the more because he has to swear against the data, against the facts that are right there in front of everybody. He speaks with an accent from that area. They know you come from the same region. You must know each other somehow. Come on. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here, Richard, I always like to point out the connection to Acts because it parallels the larger drama of the New Testament, that Peter had a vision three times in Acts of unclean foods. Remember, his denial of Jesus here in Matthew is connected to his rejection of the Lord's teaching, because he rejects the teaching against oaths by rejecting Paul's teaching that the gospel must be preached to the Gentiles and that you must call no man unclean. In Acts, three times, he's warned that you should call no man unclean. It parallels the rejection of Jesus and the Gospels. There is a connection because Paul is the one who brings Jesus Christ to you. You, listener, are the Gentile whom Peter considers unclean. And were it not for Paul, you would not be hearing this story. You are the Gentile dog that is receiving the Gospel because Paul relayed the teaching of Jesus Christ that you, Peter, should call no man unclean. And Peter rejected that teaching, just like he rejected his master three times here in the story. Yes, he went out and wept bitterly, and I've been told since, since I could understand the spoken word that it was so wonderful that 
Peter cried and wept bitterly, and this was the sign of his repentance. But his tears didn't help Jesus very much. That explanation that his tears were so meaningful and they washed away the sins of the world, all of this piety that has grown up around Peter's tears, it doesn't work in real life. Just take a basic example of the point that I'm making. If a drunk driver were to kill a child, he could cry until his face fell off. It's not going to help the mother who lost the child, and it's not going to bring the child back. And if you think that you would show compassion and you would understand, you're not being honest with yourself. And if you would impose that on a grieving mother because of your piety, then you're worse than the Pharisee in this story. If on a basic human level you can't understand her sorrow and you don't know the irrelevance of his tears and you can't separate the two, then you don't understand anything. Remember, this is not the God of Hellenism, not one of the gods of Hellenism who's like you, a fickle human being with feelings. This is the God of Ezekiel we are dealing with. And there is an accountability for the drunk driver who killed someone's kid. So Peter can cry a river. It ain't going to help. There is a reckoning and a judgment. You want to let Peter off the hook because you want to be let off the hook. But no one is off the hook until the Lord comes to separate the sheep from the goats. At least that's what I hear in Matthew, Rich. And Peter continues with the lies, the false oaths, the curses, false curses, that is. And like you said, Father, the way that he continues to betray, what do the tears really mean? Because the only thing that made him stop lying was not the rooster crowing, it was that once the rooster crowed, he remembered the word of Jesus. Hallelujah. The first time Peter actually remembers what Jesus taught, if only he'd remembered his own words about how he was never going to betray Jesus. If everyone were to be scandalized, he would not be scandalized. If only he'd remembered those words. He didn't remember any of those words. If he'd only remembered the Ten Commandments, not to bear false witness. The first thing that he actually remembered is how he himself was condemned. So there is a chance for Peter by recognizing that he's condemned according to his teacher's word, according to Jesus's word, but it by no means lets him off the hook and it by no means makes him safe from here on out. If I take a test and I forget everything that my teacher said and I remember one thing and then I cry about all the other things I forgot, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get a good grade on the test. The tears don't count for extra credit, I'm afraid. I forgot. The one hope is the professor might say, this is only in the midterm. There's a final coming up where you might be able to 
pull your grade up if you actually remember the things that I was trying to teach you. If you don't remember the things that I was teaching you, I can't help you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.